Welcome to an ECFR special podcast on the state of the nuclear negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one. I'm Ellie Giramaya, policy fellow for the MENA department at ECFR, and I'm out here in Vienna following the nuclear negotiations over the past week. I'm delighted to be joined for this podcast by Kelsey Davenport, who is the director for non-proliferation policy at the Arms Control Associations based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Kelsey and I have both actually been following the nuclear negotiations over the past uh, two years, seeing how they've developed from the Geneva interim nuclear deal uh, to the Lausanne parameters that were agreed in April. And we're out here in Vienna now on the 7th of July, where the EU High Representative Mogherini just announced that the negotiations are going to roll over their soft deadline, uh, self-imposed deadline, I should say, of 7th of July for a few more days if necessary. She also outlined that foreign ministers from various delegations would come and go over the coming days and that she would stay out here with Foreign Minister Zarif and the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry to continue talks on drafting the critical points for what's expected to be an 80-page um, document under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Now, the Russian foreign minister just left Vienna, uh, reportedly, reportedly saying that there are 10 outstanding issues left in these talks. Um, we've known and we've heard Iranian uh, senior administration officials over the past week outline that for them, the sanctions relief process remains paramount. That's uh, in accordance to its substance and also timing. Uh, the Iranians are in particular concerned that the snapback mechanism used for sanctions relief, uh, for the sanctions that are going to be relieved, um, are also going to be equal to the nuclear commitments that it undertakes. And they're trying to find a way uh, so that if either side is found in breach of its commitment going forward, uh, that there is an equal course for resolution on that front. Now, I wanted to get uh, Kelsey's um, viewpoints on how, what are some of the other issues that are affecting the talks. In particular, um, the, the foreign ministers out here, some of them have alluded to the UN Security Council resolution uh, being one of the sticking points. I wondered if you could highlight your views on what that could be. Of course. So in April, when Iran and the P5 plus one arrived at some parameters to outline the final deal, there was much more specificity on the nuclear elements than there was on the sanctions relief. Now, under a final agreement, the deal will be codified by a UN Security Council resolution that negates prior resolutions that have put in place sanctions on Iran's nuclear program and have also put in place an arms embargo and restrictions on Iran's ballistic missile development. The language of this resolution, so that the UN Security Council can reimpose sanctions in the event of a violation, has been difficult for the P5 plus one to work out, particularly amongst themselves. And in these last days, the issue of the arms embargo has really emerged as a concern. Uh, the arms embargo was put in place in 2010, in part to continue to place greater pressure on Iran to continue negotiations on its nuclear program. So per se, it is not a nuclear-related sanction, but it is covered by the, these resolutions. So how to deal with it remains a concern. 
the Iranians have expressed a preference for lifting this at some point, but it does not seem to be an issue that will make or that will break these discussions. It certainly is resolvable. Uh, it's not a red line. One of the other issues that has been a concern coming into this round has had to do with the possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program and the International Atomic Energy Agency's investigation into those issues. Since 2011, when the IAEA laid out its concerns about Iran's past activities related to nuclear weapons development, they have endeavored to work with Iran to find answers for these issues. Uh, in April, Iran agreed to take steps to address the possible military dimensions uh, as part of a deal, and that would happen ahead of the U.S. waiving sanctions and the EU lifting sanctions. Uh, Imano, the director general of the IAEA, went to Tehran uh, last week, and he was followed by a five-member delegation that went to Tehran for meetings yesterday, July 6th. And it seems like they have found a path forward both on resolving the IAEA issues, particularly defining the timeline. Imano said that a report will likely be possible by the end of the year. Uh, the timeline had been a concern to Iran because there was concern that the agency may drag out its investigation. Uh, they also have agreed on some of the modalities of the investigation, and the IAEA has taken steps to brief uh, the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, and other senior Iranian uh, figures on the monitoring and verification that will take place under a comprehensive deal. So uh, that's a very positive step from the past week. Thanks, Kelsey. And I should add, actually, some of the sessions that have been going on over the last 48 hours out here where we've had the P5 plus one foreign ministers and Secretary of State uh, carry here has been a internal debate on how to deal with this issue of the arms embargo, which, as we know, has been a standoff issue between the U.S. and Russians. And they're really trying to work away creative solutions where the P5 plus one and Iran can be um, happy that their red lines has been respected, but also to come up with some kind of a creative diplomatic pathway out of that. And um, as Kelsey mentioned, the PMD issue, we've seen some progress in the last few days with Amana's visit to Tehran. He actually got to meet with the president of Iran and the, also the secretary of the Supreme National Security Council, Shamkhani, who some say will actually be one of the uh, people on the list of interviewees for uh, the IAEA going forward on the PMD issue. So these are all uh, progress that should be highlighted. Now, both the U.S. and the Iranian um, administration have outlined in the last few days um, some more details about how the deal will actually be implemented. Um, they, they've highlighted that after the deal is announced, if one is actually agreed here in Vienna, it's going to go through an internal procedure of review. Uh, and the predominant uh, procedure of review is going to be before the U.S. Congress. Um, before before, before any type of affirmation or um, signing of the actual deal is taking place, both sides want to make sure that the internal review procedure is done so that it's not a future hurdle to implementation phase of a deal. Now, Kelsey, I wanted to ask you, because you're very much in the loop for, with what's going on in Congress, what do you foresee to be um, the, the position, given the Corker um, bill has now come into law and there is now a deadline, a congressional deadline of 9th of July, the negotiators out here um, are going to have to meet, but if they don't, it's also not the end of the world. So what, how is that timeline going to play out? 
So the July 9th deadline for submitting the deal and its supporting documents to Congress determines how long Congress will have to review the agreement. Uh, but it isn't just the deal that needs to be submitted. It's also any of the technical annexes and a verification by the Secretary of State that the deal uh, can be monitored and verified, that the International Atomic Energy Agency has the resources to do so, and Iran's activities under the deal do not constitute a risk to U.S. national security, and that the deal meets U.S. nonproliferation objectives. If all of that is submitted to Congress uh, before July 10th, so at the end of the day on July 9th, Congress will have 30 days to review the agreement. During that time, they can hold hearings, they can examine the text, they can bring in outside experts, and then Congress can decide if they are going to vote on the agreement. They can vote on a resolution of disapproval, which would hamper the president's ability to waive sanctions. They could vote to approve the agreement, in which case implementation could begin, or they could take no action. Now, if they vote to disapprove the deal, the president would have 12 days to veto the agreement, and then Congress would have an additional 10 days to try and override the veto. And again, during that 12-day period and the 10-day period, the president cannot take any action to waive sanctions. Now, if the deal and its supporting texts are submitted between July 10th and September 7th, then Congress has 60 days to review the agreement. And that is because of the August congressional recess. Congress will not be in session uh, between August 10th and September 7th. So missing the July 10th deadline really doubles the time period of congressional review. And I should add, not only does it do that, but it also doubles the time when we could start implementing the deal and actually having much more intensified verification and inspection of Iran's nuclear program starting this sooner the better. Um, now, Kelsey, there's been a lot of debate about if the course in Congress leads us to a situation where the U.S. president has to veto any votes of disapproval, um, whether he can actually sustain that veto. Now, from uh, my recent review of the numbers, it seems that he does have enough Democrats on boards to hold that veto. Do you think that's going to be possible within the 30-day review for anything to scuttle that numbers game for President Obama? I think there are a number of members of Congress who are waiting to see exactly what the deal delivers. If a final nuclear deal is based on the April 2nd Rasan parameters and the president can demonstrate that the agreement blocks Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons using uranium and plutonium and puts in place intrusive monitoring and verification, I think that there will be enough congressional support to override a veto. Uh, right now, I think a vote of disapproval is likely because many members of Congress have unrealistic expectations for a nuclear agreement. But the president will then veto that, and there are not enough members of Congress who would vote to override the veto, because a veto override requires a two-thirds vote in both the Senate and the House. I should also point out that during this 30-day review period that Congress is looking at the, uh, the proposed uh, nuclear deal, uh, the Iranian team is also going to have to present the deal to its own um, majlis, its own parliament, although that's uh, within, given the power system and the authority of the nuclear negotiation, which is under the file of the foreign ministry at the moment, that's likely to be much less of a troubling issue than it is with uh, the congressional review process. Now, we know 
also from a lot of uh, the, the background briefings and also some of the information coming out uh, this week from the Israeli newspapers that the Israeli uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is actually gearing up for a fight uh, with the U.S. administration on the Iran deal and that uh, there was a quote today that, uh, that he's going to prepare for a fight with the world on this deal. Um, so we're likely probably to see a bigger influence of Israeli lobby groups and perhaps uh, the Prime Minister himself and his administration reaching out to members of Congress in, in the U.S. Now, Kelsey, what's your viewpoint on what role um, particularly the other allies of the U.S., which are the Europeans and who have been involved with this negotiating process from day one as negotiating parties? Do you see, for example, a role for the European foreign ministers to also make appearances in Washington over the review period to outline why the deal reached is a good for global security and is backed by U.S. long-term allies. I certainly think that hearing from the European foreign ministers uh, and the European ambassadors in Washington will be very important for selling and validating the nuclear deal in Washington. It's important for Washington to remember that this is not a nuclear deal between the United States and Iran, but this is a nuclear deal between six world powers and Iran. Uh, the validation from European leadership will also demonstrate that European technical experts have come to similar conclusions as those in the United States about the strength of the agreement. It will demonstrate, it will provide further validity that the deal does indeed block Iran's pathway to the bomb and that other countries have confidence that the monitoring and verification regime is strong enough uh, to detect and deter any illicit nuclear activities. Uh, it will also be important for members of Congress to hear that there will be consequences if Congress takes action that would scuttle the negotiations and kill implementation of the deal. One of the reasons that sanctions efforts against Iran have been successful is that the international community has supported them. And if the U.S. is seen to blame for killing this deal, it is very unlikely that the same international support for sanctions will continue. So hearing those messages from European allies will be critical in the weeks after the agreement. We also outlined, actually, in an ECFR publication about a year ago that if the deal was reached and it was the U.S. legislator that stood in the way of its implementation, that would actually place Europeans in a quite a big dilemma about which uh, path is the right path for them going forward, because obviously they're going to want to save um, and safeguard whatever deal has been made. Uh, at the same time, they're going to want to support the U.S. administration with, uh, with its own fight before Congress. Um, at the same time, however, I mean, it's no surprise that Rouhani this week is visiting Mr. Putin in, in Moscow um, and giving an address before the BRICS countries. And for Iran, it's always been, you know, Russia uh, has been a plan B, in my opinion, after its engagement uh, with the West. So if, if this deal does go through and there is a unfortunate turnout with uh, what Congress decides, uh, Europeans are going to be placed with a very difficult 
choice. Uh, not only because of the nuclear issue, but I also think because of the regional um, security issue that's developing in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, containing uh, contagion is getting out of hand at the moment into into North Africa. We've seen, uh, we've seen issues with I- ISIS-related bombings in Saudi Arabia and potentially other Gulf states. And actually, this was part of the message that came out from a YouTube video that Foreign Minister Zarif issued last week, where... He looked at what were the prospects for engagements between Iran and the international community once they closed this nuclear file. And he wanted to look at a new chapter, new horizons, as he called it, for engagement uh, with Iran as a member, as a partner for the international community. Now, we know that given the proximity of Europeans to the Middle East crises uh, and the ever-stagnating situation, particularly in Syria and in Iraq at the moment, it's going to be very important to engage with Iran to see what are the options and explore these openings. Um, now, I wanted to ask, Kelsey, given the mood in D.C. at the moment, um, given also a clear tactical coordination at the moment happening between the Iranian ground offensive against ISIS, in addition to the international coalition which the U.S. is part of against uh, ISIS on the airstrike campaign. Uh, What do you see are the possibilities going forward for ad hoc coordination between the U.S. and Iran? I think the possibilities for cooperation on areas of mutual concern certainly are very strong. The Iranian nuclear deal will not erase the decades of mistrust between the United States and Iran that have grown over the years. However, it's an important step in the right direction, especially when considered uh, also in conjunction with implementation of the interim deal. Uh, Both sides have faithfully followed through on their commitments for over a year and a half. And I think that these elements lay the groundwork for continued dialogue and cooperation on areas of mutual concern, uh, such as ISIS. Uh, The drug trade is another area where I think there are possibilities. Uh, And stabilization in Afghanistan, where Iran and the United States have, have certainly worked together in the past. So continuing to keep these pathways open for exchanges and building off the nuclear deal, I think will be very important uh, in the months and years after the deal and will also help strengthen the deal. If both sides begin to build a relationship, that certainly uh, speaks to continued implementation and sustainability of the nuclear agreement. Yeah, I think I I would have to agree completely on that. We saw also this week, yesterday, an interview that the Deputy Foreign Minister for Arab Affairs from Iran um, gave uh, Mr. Abdullahian, where he essentially echoed a a rare remark by Iran's supreme leader in the aftermath of the Lausanne Agreement to say, if the nuclear deal could be reached, that would be an example, it would be a precedent where U.S.-Iran engagement has yielded positive results. And that's something to then use as a platform for future engagement. And I think that Syria in particular and the ongoing situation in Iraq is one of the areas where Iran and the international community really need to engage on in the same intensive way that they have with this nuclear issue over the past few years to really have a meaningful breakthrough. And I think, um, 
you know, we don't want to make bets here. We've uh, Kelsey and I have both been watching this, uh, the, this nego- these negotiations unfold for the last two years. But I really have to say and echo some of the words that Foreign Minister Steinmeier gave um, in Vienna over the past week, which is really that they are on the cusp of something unprecedented and they are closer than ever. That now it's really up to the foreign ministers to make the political decisions necessary to bring to light the technical decisions that have been made in a way that will safeguard global security against a um, nuclear weapons program in Iran. Um, I don't know if, uh, Kelsey, you have any parting words before we both leave Vienna here. I would certainly agree with your assessment. Uh, It's incredible the progress that has been made on a number of complex issues to date in these nuclear talks. The issues that remain are very resolvable. They're small in comparison to the whole. And while it's important to get the details right so there are no ambiguities that could set the, the implementation of the deal back, there's a clear political commitment by both sides. The international community and Iran both win with a good deal. Whereas if the talks fall apart and there is no agreement, it's likely that both sides will move back down the path of escalation and nobody wins in that scenario. Thank you for joining ECFR's podcast. Kelsey and I are going to have probably what's going to be, or hopefully, what's going to be our final schnitzel of the of the year out here in Vienna. And uh, to hopefully see this stretch of talks really wrap up over the coming days as uh, the EU higher-up Mogherini outlined a few hours ago. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you.